Joining me now to discuss is Dave Sirota. David Sirota, you were the first person that popped into my brain when I heard Fourth Amendment. Does that have David Sirota worried? Boston Globe has now started picking up and running with a potentially politically deadly story that was first unearthed by the great David Sirota. God bless this guy, David Sirota. I love that guy. David Sirota is not a journalist. He's a hack. Even the New York Times has called you a populist rabble rouser. Okay. Are you a Che Guevara? Are you a Che Guevara for our age? Uh, and you look forward to a day when college students wear your face on their shirt and don't know what you did? So it's Joe Biden's first hundred days, which I will confess, I think the hundred day frame up is sort of nonsense. I, I don't I don't know why that's continued to stick as a as a framework, but it has. And so people are now looking back at the first hundred days of Joe Biden and to try to go over what's happened in the first hundred days and what, if anything, the first hundred days tells us, uh, we are joined by Max Moran of the Revolving Door Project and David Siegel of Demand Progress. Now, both of these groups, for those who don't know them, both of these groups are progressive-leaning groups that have been focused on something called the Revolving Door Project, which is focusing on whether or not the new administration is captured by corporate interests. The revolving door, of course, is the colloquial term for people who go in and out of government, go from you know government into corporate influence jobs and then back into government. And so they've been tracking the potential corporate influence and corporate capture of the Biden administration. But before we get to that specifically, I just want to go uh, to both Max and David first about what their take on the first 100 days is. I will bury the lead here for my take. I'll wait to hear from them, which is a uh, somewhat wimpy thing to do. Um, But I want to give our guests uh, the respect to go first. So Max, you can go in any direction that you want. It's an open-ended kind of question. Joe Biden's first 100 days, what's your take? Uh, well, first, just thanks for having me on. Um, you know, like you said, I also agree that I think it's kind of like a nonsense marker. Uh, it is a completely arbitrary set of time and not really long enough to get a sense of the real themes of an administration yet. Um, I think that the my general take on Biden's administration thus far is better than anticipated and not where we need to be. Uh, Like a lot of folks, I was um, quite nervous and quite uh, upset um, by Biden, you know, winning the nomination. Um, But I think that, you know, he unusually pivoted further toward the left over the course of the remainder of that campaign uh, and then has moved to like further left, certainly not like left wing by any or progressive by any stretch of the imagination, um, but more uh, of a progressive, more of a populist type of position than certainly within my lifetime. Uh, and I'd say really within sort of the last 40 years or so, as far as like, you know, the heydays of neoliberalism, I think that we're starting to see uh, a little bit of action um, towards questioning certain corporate uh, dogmas that have dominated uh, Washington and dominated discourse for a long time. I don't think that is coming directly from Biden himself. I think that that's reflective of the fact that he is a politician who responds to incentives around him. His entire uh, history in politics has been um, just finding wherever the exact middle of the Democratic Party is at a given time and just planting his flag there. And the exact middle of the Democratic Party has shifted quite significantly to the left of where it was uh, even under Obama's time uh, 10 years ago. Um, So, you know, any real victories, I think, are reflective of the fact that the progressive movement uh, has built significantly more power than it had uh, for quite a long time. Uh, there is still a great deal more to go, and Biden uh, himself is not naturally inclined towards those directions. Uh, but you know, I think that things are going certainly better than I would have thought that they would have been uh, under a President Biden, but there is still much that is unacceptable and much uh, that needs to be done. David Siegel, what's your take on Joe Biden's 
first hundred days. Max is sort of saying that Biden is a little bit more to the left than a lot of people expected. What did you expect? And do you agree? So I'm, I'm going to start by disagreeing with you guys on one key point, which is I think the 100 day marker, while like arbitrary and relative to you know whether it should be 110 days versus 90 days or whatever, um, do, does actually matter, especially now and in this in the, the context of the Biden administration. Wow! So you're 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 a hundred days truther, basically. <laughs> I'm a, a, yes, yeah. um, I, I am. Yes, I am. I'm an establishment <laughs> hack in this particular regard. I, I think, like when we're looking at personnel in particular, I, I think it really does matter because we've got the vast majority of these top posts have at least seen uh, nominees chosen. Um, some people still working their ways through the process, and there are a few outstanding, substantial uh, posts, you know, yet, yet yet to be nominated for. But um, I, I think we've got a pretty solid sense of who he's going to be surrounding himself with. And I think, um, you know, in the context of Trump, uh, things were similar, Obama and so on. Um, so there, there isn't, you know, a ton of major legislation usually passed by this period necessarily. Um, but we've got a good sense of the general tenor of the administration, though in this case we have seen some stuff passed. And I think that um, compared to, say, the Obama administration, the way that it dealt with the crisis that it was facing, uh, which was um, in some ways similar, obviously in some ways dissimilar. There was not a pandemic, but there was a huge economic crisis. Uh, we have seen substantial advances, and it will be interesting over time to try to de deconstruct how much of that's a function of pressure that uh, the general population is put on the administration, um, you know, the context of the primary and the ways in which the Democratic Party is moving left, and also the ways in which the Republican Party has moved at least in an aesthetically more populist uh, trajectory that uh, establishment Democrats who want to win general elections need to guard against ever more. Um, and to what degree it's new ideas that have taken hold, um, or an analysis of what went wrong about the Obama years, both in terms of policy and the politics that followed from those policy determinations. And there, there'll be a lot to, to, to break down there over years to come, but things have landed in a much better place than uh, past recent past Democratic administrations have, and, and also better than I expected, um, which is why Jeff, who is a colleague of Max's at the Ralph Door Project, and I, in our interminably long democracy journal piece um, from a month or so ago, used the title, Building Back Better and then the parenthetical then expected. Right. And I think that's the, the expectations are part of what's happening here, which is that the expectations, when you put together the Clinton administration, for those of us who are ancient enough to remember that, me being one of them, uh, and the Obama administration, when you look at it through that context, I, it's undoubtable that the Biden administration out of the gate is taking a more progressive posture than either of those past two Democratic administrations. Now, again, you're right. You can say that that's because the Democratic Party has changed. You can say that's because the country as a whole has faced so many crises that it just sort of nat naturally the tectonics of politics have, have changed. But Clearly, it is something different, and I would argue it is something for now uh, somewhat better. And I would put specifics on it, and I've said this before. The emergency uh, rescue plan, the sheer size of the spending, and the target of the spending, meaning the income breakdown of who benefits, is much more targeted, much more progressive, and much larger than anything you saw uh, after when Clinton first got in and, and when Obama got in. And I think that's – you just can't pretend that doesn't exist, right? I mean I've been a, a, a critic of what was not in the stimulus bill, right? They didn't do the minimum wage and I could go on and on about things that should have been in there that weren't. But you can't just say you know $1.9 trillion of spending just doesn't exist, right? That's a real – Thing. I mean, I, I, in my view, I think Bernie Sanders uh, overstated it a little bit when he said it's the most transformative piece of legislation in the country's modern history. I mean, I think that's, that's laying it on a little thick, but it is certainly um, significant, and I think you can't pretend that that doesn't exist. Now, the other point that you brought up about the first 100 days is, is that a lot of this is actually not necessarily about legislation. 
It's about who you've put into the government for the next three and a half, almost four years. And that gets to the focus of what you have both focused on, which is this revolving door. Now, I want to set the table here by pointing out that the previous standards of the Clinton administration and the Obama administration were abominable on this score, right? I mean, like, in, in some ways, it's like the, the, the you know, the, the low expectations for Joe Biden or the bar being set so low is like easy for him to clear because, you know, the Clinton and Obama folks just grabbed folks just straight from Wall Street, straight from the industries that they were regulating. I mean, it was it was really kind of like the revolving like the, the, the critique of the revolving door barely existed in their mind. I mean, Obama sort of saluted it a little bit with his lobbyist rule, but he, like he didn't really seem to care about it. And I'm not sure, by the way, how much Joe Biden actually cares about the concept of the revolving door as much as his ideological positioning right now being different would mean that he would have to grab people uh, or at least more people who aren't coming through the revolving door. So I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily sure it's Joe Biden saying, I don't want to, you know, have revolving door relationships. I mean, and, and we'll go into some specifics where it's clear that that's not on his mind. I just think it's like if you have a different political posture and you're pick and you have a more progressive posture than your predecessors then the people you're going to pick to populate your administration are going to be uh fewer people coming through that revolving door but before we get into the specifics we'll start with David here why don't you just give us a sense you're you used to be a state legislator you've been working on this stuff forever just a sense for folks who maybe know that the revolving door exists, but don't necessarily know how important it is. Just give us a sense of like why somebody coming from corporate America into the government is something to be concerned about. I know it's such like a sort of rudimentary question, but one of the arguments that you hear is, well, you know, people who come out of the industries to come and then go regulate their industries, there's the argument that says they're the best people to regulate their industries because they know their industries the best. So why don't you give us your take on why this specific issue of the revolving door is so important and why folks coming through the revolving door, why that should be of concern? I think there, there are a number of different reasons we can on a few of them. I, I think that if you're in the corporate you know, milieu and you know, not, not just somebody running a small business, but if you're, if you're working for Wall Street, if you're working for Silicon Valley, that uh, right away is a signal about a certain ethos. Um, you've decided to make certain decisions with your life rather than other decisions. And usually if you're somebody who's operating the highest echelons of these sorts of industries, you could have done basically anything you wanted with your life. You could have decided to become a public interest lawyer instead of becoming a corporate lawyer. You decided to become a corporate lawyer. So that signals certain things about your values and your ambitions and so on uh, to begin with. And moreover, um, a lot of the people, the probably people we're most concerned with are not people who simply operated in those contexts, but were actively pushing back against government regulation, uh, attempts to ensure that the uh, markets in which these companies are situated operate in a way that generally you know, redounds to the benefit of the public. So, if, of course, companies are going to make money, but they're going to make that money within certain limits, guardrails in place to ensure that they're doing it in ways that generally creates uh value for society um, and are not uh, you know, shoving externalities off on the rest of us or um, rent-seeking, extracting money from us without actually adding new value, creating new products and services and so on. And so you have a lot of lawyers who are actively pushing back against government's attempts to regulate their industries, either by um, defending companies against particular enforcement actions or, in some cases, trying to engage with like the 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 underlying structures themselves, like lobbying for certain outcomes that allow for these companies to make uh, ever more money, even when that means doing things to undermine the public interest, you know, think about environmental regulations or creating a more distributed economy where antitrust laws are enforced and uh, on and on and on. Um, on the other side of it, uh, you, you can imagine that somebody who has been of this milieu for years before entering government um, might want to go back and work for such industries on the other side of government. And a lot of people see their stint in government as an opportunity to learn how structures operate, like make or refresh contacts that they can leverage down the line in order to help uh, pursue an agenda um, and 
see their time in government as an opportunity to increase their value to the private sector. And so we need to be concerned about this on, on both sides of government service. And Max, I'll, let me follow on that. I mean, that, that point about people looking ahead to their future employment, the, the, to me, the most cartoonish example of this, and there are many, but the most cartoonish, like the one that you just, I, I just can't find a better example, I would say is Eric Holder. I mean, Eric Holder was a big-time lawyer at the biggest of big-time white-collar defense firms, becomes the Attorney General of the United States of America, does not prosecute Wall Street criminals, and goes immediately back to the same Wall Street, uh, excuse me, the white-collar defense law firm. At one point, I think they said something along the lines of they were keeping his office like yeah, they, for him. Yeah, they, like, they literally did, even as they... I think even as they built their new headquarters, they built right. a new corner office for him that was kept empty. Knowing that he was coming back, uh, and now I, there was a recent story that he's being paid $2,000 an hour uh, as a lawyer. And it's not to pick on Eric Holder uh, only, although it is to pick on Eric Holder because it is like there's just no more egregious example uh, of that, at least in democratic politics. Um, this idea that people are coming in in order to go out or maybe coming in in order to go out. I mean, some might hear that and be like, wow, that's like a really cynical view, right? You know, you got to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like people may be working in industries and they've got that expertise from working in the industry. And if they're coming in to a job and they've sworn an oath to do the job to the best of their ability, we shouldn't be so cynical as to think that they're just there to increase their value, their net value, which they'll then go um, trade on and cash in on later. Um, you hear this, I, I don't believe what I've just said, like I'm just playing right. devil's advocate here, but I mean, what is your response to those who would argue that, look, you need to pick the experts, and a lot of times the experts are working in the industry? Well, I'd say a few things to that. First of all, uh, it's very much not always the case that the experts are working in industry. Uh, you have academics who study, like, you know, all of these sophisticated areas. You have legal experts who study these uh, areas. You have maybe most importantly, and as far as groups that have been cut out of the government process, you have um, community activists. You have people on the ground who have felt the effects of, of policies. But to the, your question directly, um, you know, if you are an industry-linked uh, person who genuinely wants to uh, give back and wants to um, join government in order to lend your expertise of your industry towards policymaking, well, you can just become a civil servant. Uh, there's no reason that you have to be uh, nominated and appointed and approved at the very highest levels of government. There's no reason that Eric Holder, to take your example, has to become attorney general. He could have chosen to become, you know, a lower level staff within the Department of Justice, learn some of the ins and outs of how the DOJ thinks about things. And uh, maybe uh, if he finds that he has a taste for it and he finds that he's talented at it, he can rise through the ranks like anybody else. Um, there's absolutely no reason why, uh, you know, the civil service and why GS-15 individuals, um, you know, uh, can't include uh, industry-linked folks. Uh, and if you are an industry person who genuinely wants to just like, you know, join government in that sense, you can take that path. Uh, I think that's like if you look at uh, industry folks who have uh, come and gone through the revolving door, who have um, uh, entered at a high level and then uh, exited government, you find that most of the time. Uh, they then are returning to high power positions, either being like CEOs or things like that, or often becoming lobbyists, either shadow lobbyists or uh, or lawyers in order to trade on their insider knowledge. Um, you know, the facts of how these types of relationships and these types of dynamics tend to play out indicate that, yeah, it is pretty cynical. Uh, there are exceptions, Gary Gensler being a notable exception, but uh, you know, I'd say that the strong majority of the time, uh, it is actually just that grim. Uh, Gary Gensler is a good example of what I want to go into next. Now, Gary Gensler, for those who don't know, Gary Gensler was nominated and confirmed as the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, Joe Biden's appointment. Gary Gensler had previously been uh, the Obama-appointed head of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Gary Gensler 
came out of Goldman Sachs. Gary Gensler poses a um, is kind of the example that's that violates the rule. Gary Gensler is known as somebody who wanted to do much stronger regulation during the Obama era, uh, hopefully wants to do strong uh, financial regulation in now the Biden era, but he came out of Goldman Sachs. Um, David Siegel, I'll ask you, I mean, Gary Gensler, let's go into some specific nominees from Biden. This one is, a, a, to my mind, a really important one, head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, so important for financial regulation. I mean, you know, like, how do you square the circle with like, Gary Gensler's a Goldman guy, but Gary Gensler's also like, known as a fairly serious regulator? So I, I think Gensler was a surprise uh, under the Obama administration. And um, many of us took to what he did at the CFTC. I think that we are also very concerned about Gary Gensler right now. Uh, to be frank about it, I think there'll be more on this in coming days. But now is not a moment where I'm particularly inclined to praise him. It looks like he's hiring people in from big law who have not yet signaled that they are willing to buck uh, the wants of, of corporate uh, law elites. And um, we'll see how things play out. But I, I would be much more reserved in my praise of where he seems to be taking things wow. at this juncture. Wow. And that's like, I'm like, you know, I've been, I've been covering financial regulation for a long time. And he was always seen, I shouldn't say always, but for a, a long time, at least in the Obama administration, he was seen as one of the few who had sort of sympathies with the idea that the financial sector needed uh, to be regulated. But let's let, let's yeah, not it, get it, it, go ahead. Well, it, it, it might still work out that way. I'm, I'm I'm a little bit concerned that he might be, let's say, stuck in the Obama era where he was good for Obama, but um, I see is not necessarily moved with the times over the ensuing, you know, 48 years. Um, and is, is it, I, we'll see how things play out. I think we'll have a much sharper signal of how things are headed pretty soon. But for now, I am quite, you're reserving, you're reserving comment. That's fair. All right. Well, let's, let's pull back a little bit. So you, the revolving door project issued a report card on Biden generally. So we're going to start with the general, then we're going to go into the specifics. Generally speaking, where does the Biden administration come down when it comes to the revolving door? And I want to make specific questions here. One, the general sort of grade of how corporate connected this administration is. And and two, what, if any, controls has Biden put in place to try, beyond the personnel decisions, to try to limit corporate influence uh, in his government, whether ethics rules or the like? Max, those two questions to you. Uh, so in our report card, our overall grade for Biden on corporate capture is a B minus. Uh, we basically say that, uh, like I said at the head, uh, Biden is proving to be like one of the least captured presidents of our lifetimes, but that's a pretty low hurdle to clear. Um, there are most certainly uh, examples of appointees who have ties that we're deeply concerned about. Um, there are also examples of appointees who are coming from a more independent direction. Um, we think that, uh, you know, um, again, in part because sort of the optics of this issue within like Democratic Party and policy circles have shifted to a point where, um, you know, like that argument that, uh, you know, an industry person is going to have the most expertise just doesn't have the same sway that it used to. And in fact, it, most people think that it kind of looks bad if you're hiring you know, Wall Street to oversee Wall Street or Silicon Valley to oversee Silicon Valley. Um, you end up with a situation where uh, Biden is like, you know, again, mostly trying to draw from a, a diverse uh, pool of applicants, both in terms of ethnicity as well as in terms of experience. Um, some of them are folks who have just been in his inner circle for a long time. I'd say one of the folks that we're most disappointed with, or one of the folks I'm most concerned about, I should say rather, is uh, Steve Reschetti, whose brother is literally an Amazon and big pharma lobbyist. Uh, he was a big pharma lobbyist himself right up until uh, the Biden campaign kicked off, at which point he was essentially Biden's point person for, bi for big dollar donations from corporations and so on. Um, you know, having the brother of an Amazon and pharma lobbyist 
to have the direct ear of the president is not exactly good. Um, on the other hand, uh, you have Deb Holland at Interior as probably one of the brighter points of, of the administration so far. Uh, you have surprisingly good picks uh, so far, at least, for um, for antitrust. You have Lena Khan. You have Tim Wu as sort of this uh, coordinating role as far as that goes within uh, the White House. Um, so our overall impression is one of uh, a president who is seeing that uh, these critiques of corporate power uh, have a lot of weight, and that and he was recognizing that um, that his party doesn't want to be seen and viewed in that way, and and is is recognizing that there's that there's some real problems and issues there, uh, and is sort of trying to figure out how to square the circle between uh, his. Uh, the more corporate elements within the Democratic Party, to which he is like you know quite deeply linked, uh, as well as the progressive base. Um, as far as rules in order to prevent uh, influence, um, you know, so much like Obama, which you alluded to, he Biden has uh, put in place a ban on uh, lobbyists serving in his administration. Uh, this is sort of exploiting a common misconception in terms of the way that he has played this out, because a lot of the influence industry, for one thing, just doesn't really flow through lobbyists. Uh, lobbyists, um, the, the term lobbying just refers to telling a legislator or a regulator, you should vote yes or no on this specific bill or regulation. There's a whole lot to uh, influencing politics that isn't that specific behavior. Um, so if you say, I'm not going to have any lobbyists, that doesn't mean they're not going to have any big law lawyers who, uh, you know, litigate on behalf of, of industry and have connections with uh, high-level government officials. doesn't mean you're not going to have any consultants. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, um, started a very lucrative consulting firm called West Exec Advisors, uh, where he had Google as a client, he had um, a drone manufacturing company as a client, and so on. Um, it doesn't mean they don't have uh, what we term shadow lobbyists, basically people who do everything up to the legal definition of the term lobbying, um, which encompasses basically everything that people hate about the, the lobbying industry, just doesn't include this very specific legal act therein. Um, so again, like, you know, Biden is, uh, is clearing the low hurdle in the sense that his rules are legitimately stronger than Obama's were, than Clinton's were, and so on, but they really aren't addressing the issue head on. So my take overall is that for the most part, and we're going to get into specifics right now, but for the most part, Biden has avoided appointing people who would be egregiously, eye-rollingly, political, cartoonishly absurd in terms of the revolving door. Like I, I don't have too many people in my where I'm where too many people that I that I've seen where I've been like, that's just like gross, right? Like you you put like a Wall Street guy in as Treasury Secretary, right? You put like a like I mean I, I guess technically Geithner wasn't exactly a Wall Street guy, but I mean being head of the New York Fed and being so tight with those guys, he was basically a Wall Street guy, right? So like. Biden, to to my mind, has has for the most part refrained from just kind of the nakedly crass appointments so far. Now maybe you you both have examples where I, that I've missed, but that's so so one like progress, like somebody somewhere in that White House feels at least some level of shame. In, in and and therefore is in theory responding to it. Now, Rashetti is a different example. Rashetti is by, one of Biden's longest time advisors, who's now sort of got this um, sort of general senior advisor to the president uh, kind of role, and and he is connected to a a major uh, corporate lobbying force in Washington. Uh, but in the cabinet, in the major uh, uh, appointments, it's not as nearly as as naked and crass as Obama was or, or Clinton was. So now I want to turn to the specifics and I want to kind of do like a good, bad and ugly framework, right? Like, why don't we start? Cause we're, you know, we're, we've been talking about some of the good parts here. We'll start with David. Give me like two or three examples of like really good appointments that Biden has made whether they were expected or unexpected, and why you think they uh, have been important uh, for policy, not just for the whole concept of the revolving door, but for the actual policy that will be implemented. I think the obvious 
standouts are Eroa Chopra, who is currently at the Federal Trade Commission as a commissioner who's been appointed to run the CFPB and who'd worked there previously and has got a long track record now of combating uh, the banks, the for-profit ed uh, sector, um, trying to do right by people who are abused by it and ensure that they're made whole um, after it became clear that uh, the tuition they paid uh, was essentially for naught. Um, and who's led the charge at the FTC to reorient the uh, the, the agency towards, um, I guess, doing anything <laughs> towards recognizing it as power and trying to uh, exercise it, um, culminating a few months ago in its lawsuit to sue to break up Facebook uh, as a monopoly on a variety of grounds. Um, he, he's also been one of the leading lights of the orientation towards the notion that we need to break up big tech, which is really something that you know, net now is sort of this ubiquitous phenomenon, like people talk about all the time, as though it's a, a possibility and sort of obvious that it needs to happen. And just a few years ago, uh, was seen as tilting at windmills. Um, and at the and then the 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 the, the person who I, I equally impresses me would be um, Lena Khan, who is being appointed to the FTC, um, I guess for the, not not for his seat, but for another empty Democratic seat, um, who's now working her way through the confirmation process as well, and has been one of the leading academic lights of that same movement to attack the power of big tech in particular, like recognizing its dominance over our economy and speech and uh, to varying degrees over our democracy, and also to begin to uh, reinvigorate antitrust more generally. And Max, same question to you. Like, w- w- other than the ones that David has has named, what are some of the standouts to you, and why? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, David definitely hits uh, what we would agree are the are the strongest points of this administration. Really, um, Rohit Chopra, Lena Khan, Tim Wu. Um, I think that uh, we had initially been. Uh, been fairly positive on um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, although we are uh, becoming less so specifically on financial regulation. Um, She has been uh, surprisingly uh, tentative about thinking more seriously about uh, non-bank forces in, in uh, in that sector of the economy, which are dangerous. But she also was uh, a very devoted foot soldier for the um, American Recovery Act, which you uh, mentioned earlier uh, in terms of like, you know, the much larger spending and also spending um, that's much more targeted toward those who actually need it. Uh, this is reflective of her um, focus as an economist. So on that, we are still very positive on her, but have questions and concerns about other elements of the Treasury Secretary job. Um, I think that uh, you're also generally seeing that this, these aren't uh, as higher profile nominees or appointees, but um, the types of economists who are being brought into things like the National Economic Council, even if we have concerns about the director, Brian Deese, uh, you are seeing uh, alumni of like Senator Elizabeth Warren, as well as other uh, more left-leaning and progressive uh, economists and, and figures who are thinking through how to advise and how to break down and how to just even think it through uh, basic issues within our economy. Um, and that in turn percolates outward towards uh, the policy solutions that uh, venues like the NEC adopt. Um, so again, these aren't like sort of the higher profile figures, um, but uh, the voices that are in the room reflect a much wider uh, ideological uh, spectrum and a much wider spectrum of practical experience um, than you would have had uh, in past administrations. And, okay, and now, I, I would, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to jump in and say, uh, uh, because um, the NDC came up, I'd say that if there's any candidate for who will be the Gensler of now, um, of this administration, I, I think that you know, Brian Deese, who is leading the NEC as perhaps the leading contender. Um, he is... By that you mean somebody better than you might expect. Yes. Um, and he spun out of BlackRock, um, where he's involved in you know, climate-related work there, which you know, a lot of folks um, were concerned, and I think legitimately concerned, was tantamount essentially to greenwashing uh, the this, this massive funds uh, investments. 
um, has at the NEC hired in a ton of people who are pretty extraordinary um, into subdirector roles um, and, and who are serious about regulating the corporate sector. And moreover, the NEC seems to be a driving force for broad, robust stimulus and at times seems to be pushing further than has been Treasury's inclination to push. Um, so it's worth continuing to watch and, you know, by no means does that mean that we should start accepting uh, people from like BlackRock and Wall Street like willy nilly into these roles. Um, but you know, we're, we're yeah, I think that the frameworks that we've created by which we determine um, whether or not somebody somebody we're excited to see in these posts is right. You know, ninety ninety five percent of the time, um, but there are exceptions uh, that that prove the rule, and this might be one of those. And and it it, it is worth saying that. Personnel is policy. I mean, that's the old idea. That, that That's what undergirds a lot of why we talk about these things. But ultimately, these people do operate. They don't operate in a vacuum, right? They're, they're operating inside of an administration, that, and, and Biden is, is at the top of it where he's setting the direction. So sure, it, it's not great that somebody from BlackRock's running the NEC, but also he's in a political context where he's being given orders or he's being given uh, directives. So that raises the question of um, bad. Let's go over like, okay, here's like two or three really problematic appointees uh, that we should all be worried about. Max, we're going to put you on the hot seat first. Who are those? Sure. Um, uh, I'd say... The nominee who's maybe getting, or the appointee rather, uh, who's getting um, sort of the least attention for the most damage that they can and in some ways are already doing is Merrick Garland for Attorney General. Um, there was uh, an interesting uh, feature in the New Republic that was published today, the day that we're recording this at least, just sort of like uh, has the framework that, uh, you know, you can ask anybody in Washington and nobody has a bad thing to say about Merrick Garland. Well, uh, okay, here's some things to say about Merrick Garland. Uh, he seems personally like a very nice guy, but he's very much a committed institutionalist at a time when uh, DOJ really needs someone who's going to really be willing to go to bat, uh, go to bat against corporate power, also go to bat uh, against white supremacy in ways that are going to be uh, – Garland is signaling that he's interested in that, but his biggest – concerns are sort of like rebuilding the Department of Justice in terms of uh, as the institution that he remembers from uh, the Clinton era and the Obama era. Um, when he's coming in after, the reason they have to do so much rebuilding in the first place is because it's coming in after Donald Trump, a figure who, um, you know, used uh, the Justice Department both essentially as his own personal law office and also to advance hateful, awful racist policies. Um, and part of that DOJ institutionalism means that Garland is inclined toward uh, basically continuing the litigation stance that was established under the Trump administration because, well, that's the stance that the Department of Justice has uh, has decided on. It, it sort of treats DOJ as this uh, non-political entity when, of course, it is. It most certainly was under Trump, but, uh, like, you know, the decisions that happen at DOJ are always political. Um, so I'd say Garland is the figure who, uh, by virtue of his position and how powerful it is, DOJ litigates on behalf of the entire rest of the federal government. Uh, the fact that his personal incentives and his personal sort of stance uh, is one that we fear doesn't quite meet the moment. Uh, there's a great deal of potential harm that can come out of that. Um, I would need a second to think of a second example, uh, but I would be curious to hear what David has to say. Yeah, David, what do you what do you think? I mean, who's like to your to your mind beyond Merrick Garland? Who are some of the folks that people should be watching and be concerned about? Well, there's of course my former governor Gina Raimondo, uh, who's commerce secretary, and uh, I'm kind of still amazed how much traction she had over the course of this process. She was considered seriously for Treasury and for HHS, uh, which is really remarkable because she's got essentially no experience um, in that field except to have run Rhode Island as it's suffered one of the worst manifestations of the COVID pandemic. Um, then was being considered, I think, briefly for transportation before Buttigieg got it and then landed at Commerce. And she's somebody who's got a history of extraordinary subservience to Wall Street, um, cut uh, pensions for people who'd 
already retired, uh, which was extraordinary. I think perhaps literally unheard of at the time, um, about a decade ago, and then shifted a disproportionate percentage of the Rhode Island pension fund into various exotic investments, which underperformed and have since been walked back by her successor. Um, so we'll see what she'll do with commerce. We're especially concerned about its authority over uh, patents, um, which are of uh, most importance now in the context of the COVID crisis and the possibility of relaxing some patent requirements, or allowing for government production of, of drugs to help uh, ensure a global and to you know what's what's definitely definitionally a global phenomenon, the pandemic, um, and and. So she, she's of, of, of great concern. I really don't understand why she had so much traction with the administration. She doesn't particularly have a popular base. Um, there are obviously Wall Street people trying to get her in. But Well, that actually raises a question then, which is a good segue, which is the criticism that Obama, uh, Obama, Biden has faced uh, uh, about the vaccines. Good example, where they have not moved with speed uh, to open up the vaccine intellectual property uh, and the vaccine uh, raw materials or supplies to other countries. And the drug industry, pharmaceutical industry, has opposed that because the pharmaceutical industry sees this as a huge uh, profit issue. And Gina Raimondo is in some ways in a position to slow down or speed up the process of uh, allowing the export of that intellectual property. What I want to know from both of you is, are there other examples so far in, that you can point to where you say, this person is in this job and this may be why this or that policy is not as good as it needs to be? There's usually not a one-to-one -one relationship, but like, are there not just examples of people that you, you're concerned about, but like, this policy didn't come out of this department yet. And you put that data point next to the fact that they appointed this person over here, and you start to have some real uh, concrete examples of what there is to be concerned about. I mean, the Ramondo pharmaceutical not moving fast enough on the vaccines seems like, you know, whether or not she's slowing it down or, or speeding it up, it's just that that's not a good fact pattern. Are there other areas where we have already seen not a very good fact pattern. Uh, we'll start with David. I, I don't want to draw lines as definitively of that as definitively as that in other realms. And there are the other places where I'm concerned about what's happening. Um, sure. I, I think the national security realm is a really mixed space, both in personnel and in actions that we've seen so far. Um, it's an area that's been especially rife with corporate conflicts so that we've got, you know, paid consultancies like, you know, West exec, um, which I think Max, one of you mentioned earlier, uh, which was co-founded by Tony Blinken who's the secretary of state. Now um, there are myriad you know, investment firms um, there and SPACs showing up on financial disclosures for various officials. Uh, we saw Avril Haines um, who, during her tenure in the Obama administration at CIA and as deputy NATSEC advisor, uh, evidenced a, a really problematic, um, to say the least, uh, relationship with the concept of torture, um, trying to, uh, pushing for sort of more maximalist redactions of the torture report and uh, refusing to discipline the CIA personnel who hacked into the Senate's investigation of the U.S.'s use of torture. And she later went on to uh, advocate actively for Gina Haspel, who um, Trump chose to run his CIA. She was one of the very few Democrats who did so because Haspel had actually overseen a black site in Thailand where uh, torture was um, performed. I'm not sure what the appropriate verb is, um, but real, real horrors. And so it, it, uh, we're, we're keeping a close eye on her. The other side of the end of the spectrum, this is maybe the, the obverse of what you were asking for. Um, we are in relative terms, pretty pleased with where the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has landed. Um, he was in contention with, and I'd say the underdog for that spot, vis-a-vis um, -vis a person named Michelle Flournoy, who we think would have been much more bellicose based on various uh, postures she'd taken over the years, including uh, evidently a 
continued drive to have the U.S. sell arms to um, Saudi Arabia, at, at least as recently as I think 2019, um, after the Khashoggi killing and after pushback uh, against the U.S. involvement in the, the Saudi-led war in Yemen, um, had manifested in meaningful action in Congress. Um, whereas Austin, despite some concerning corporate conflicts of his own, uh, has been an expert in drawdowns in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, that's his last posts as a general and entailed such work and was an opponent to the war in Yemen from the outset. And now we've got uh, the Biden administration quite you know, happily uh, committing to a drawdown in Afghanistan um, on a by September timeframe and reporting has indicated that Austin is actively running interference with the top military brass of trying to ensure that um, this works on schedule despite pushback um, from the military proper. And so that, that's a spot where uh, his being in place as opposed to others who had some potential to be so might actually really be doing some good for the world. Well, I, it's always been my perception, having worked on Capitol Hill, having worked, you know, at various levels of politics, that, and having reported on it, which is to say that the economic policies and appointments are arguably more sensitive to the domestic politics of the moment, which then makes it arguably harder to change the political consensus and what's known as the Washington blob on national security issues. That's a long way of saying that that the even harder task, I, I believe, beyond changing economic policy, policies and, and, and the kinds of people who are appointed to those jobs is the national security space, which really has had this tradition of kind of bipartisan consensus, a very narrow set of the kinds of people that can even be appointed to those jobs. And the fear being, of course, that Biden has a, a in theory, could have a mini version of the LBJ dynamic, which is LBJ pretty good on economic policies, right? Great society, uh, the, the civil rights bill uh, and the like, but had an absolutely horrible foreign policy uh, backed by a kind of bipartisan consensus. So, as we conclude this interview, I mean, Max, I would ask you, how concerned should we be about that kind of dynamic, a domestic politics, domestic economic politics that's responsive to, to the political crisis, the economic crisis in the country, and therefore the appointments are good, but the national security space not really changing uh, all that much? I think that... To me, where I'm sitting, that feels like it's the most likely dynamic uh, at this moment, at least, as we've said, 100 days is still a bit of an arbitrary number. Uh, David may choose to disagree. Um, uh, to me, that feels like it's shaping up to be the most likely sort of dynamic uh, for the Biden administration. You know, one thing which we haven't talked about at all is immigration uh, and what's happening at the southern border as well. Um, yeah, yes, please tell us about that, actually. Please do. Well, I, I mean... All I, all I would say there is that, like, you know, to me, that's an example of how, like, you know, um, there are uh, factors for assessing a presidency, which, I mean, this is sort of an obvious point, but there's factors for assessing a presidency that don't fall, fit neatly into a corporate capture sort of framework. I think that, um, like, you know, uh, seeing, um, you know, kids and people uh, in these detention centers is a, is horrifying. And, um, Biden obviously inherited an incredibly uh, terrible situation, but also we have to be able to assess him and look at uh, at the policies that he has implemented. Um, I think that David is much more expert than I am in general on foreign policy, uh, but I would say that uh, I think that, yes, uh, Biden's team is proving receptive to and at least willing to listen to um, issues and questions related to domestic economic uh, policies, but uh, for one thing, foreign policy is something which Biden himself has always personally cared more about. Uh, and second, uh, you know, his foreign policy team and the foreign policy incentives are he's much less responsive to uh, progressive pressure uh, on those topics. Um, so I think that 
I wish that I had sort of a clean answer, like, you know, here's the one weird trick to get Biden to uh, care about foreign policy through a progressive lens. I don't have that one weird trick. Um, but I do think that uh, it's clear that uh, movement building and a lot of hard work in order to uh, get uh, Democratic establishment types to see things through a progressive lens because the progressives aren't going away and are a growing constituency uh, that has clearly worked and is continuing to work uh, on many domestic um, issue areas. And so uh, that's the path that we have to keep on traveling. And, and it's worth adding when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, Biden, he's been somewhat erratic if you look at his 40-year career on domestic issues. I mean, he was a deficit hawk. Now he's spending money. I mean, there's been a traject there's been a kind of journey there. On foreign policy, the guy has been like all over the place. I mean, really. I mean, he voted against the Gulf War. He led the fight for the charge, the Democratic charge for the Iraq War. I mean, he really has been all over the place. And I think your point about how much he has actually cared about issues, right? My view on Joe Biden is that Joe Biden is, by and large, has been a thumb in the wind kind of politician, as you said at the beginning, knows where the center of the Democratic Party is. If you had had to say there's one talent of Joe Biden, it's that he knows where the center of his own party is. Uh, and so back in the, in the 90s, when it was cool to be like a deficit hawk Democrat, he was a deficit hawk Democrat. And now it's not cool to be that. And so he's not that. And so it sort of betrays the idea, it sort of exposes the idea that he doesn't have necessarily um, deep ideological moorings on a lot of things, but that is contrasted with on national security foreign policy. He does have uh, beliefs on it. They've been kind of all over the map. It's something that I think he he's like a self-styled expert. He sees himself as somebody with, with, with deeply held uh, expertise and beliefs on it. So it is something that, like, it's really hard to predict what he's going uh, to be like. But following his actual appointments is one of the at least best empirical ways to know the kinds of, of directions that he's going. And so the report that you uh, have put out, uh, the Revolving Door Project report, I think it's really important for everybody who's listening to this to just read the whole report uh, to not necessarily uh, make – uh, uh, sort of definitive conclusions just yet, but to to look at the personnel decisions as a signal of where we're going. Max Moran and David Siegel, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>